Do you have an extra $150 a week to cover the rising cost of living? That's the sum households can expect to dig deep for each week this year. People are increasingly worried about the cost of home and contents insurance. More and more, Kiwi households can't afford insurance. When times are hard, it's hard to pay for something that you can't see any results for unless you get the bad news. But can we afford to not afford it? Cyclone Gabrielle is the most significant weather event New Zealand has seen this century. Tens of thousands of landslides. 72 Olympic swimming pools of water every minute for six hours. Total devastation. There's so many people that are out of their homes. In our hour of need, who should foot the bill? It's been six months since Cyclone Gabrielle smashed into Te Tairawhiti, the east coast, destroying hundreds of homes, leaving 11 people dead and causing billions of dollars worth of damage. The scale of the extreme weather events, along with the Auckland anniversary weekend floods, has resulted in more than 100,000 claims valued at over $3 billion. This looks like the largest weather event that um, AA Insurance has ever seen and probably the largest event um, kind of next to the Canterbury earthquakes. Kia ora, I'm Sarah Robson and today on The Detail, big natural disasters with big repair bills. Six months on from Cyclone Gabrielle, we ask whether our insurance system is really fit for purpose and what the potential options are for change as we face a future dominated by the impacts of climate change. First, Stuff's Money Editor Susan Edmonds. Susan and her team of journalists look at consumer and personal finance issues. And in a recent story, she spoke to budgeting services up and down the country about the cost of living pressures families are facing. Yeah, well, what really struck me in that conversation was that they were saying that it's kind of the middle income families who are coming looking for help now rather than perhaps the sort of people that you would traditionally think would need that assistance. And our family would probably be regarded as middle or high income, but... We got we, there's nothing to spare, you know. It's hard for everybody. I mean, I guess that makes sense. A lot of pressure is going on those households, but it was sort of the first time I'd ever heard them say that. Particularly if they earn sort of just too much to get any assistance, but they're also kind of paying quite a lot in tax, and maybe their KiwiSaver um, is taking a bit, and their student loans, and then they've got their interest rates have gone up heaps. That is a lot of pressure on on a household, I'd say. And one of the interesting things that struck me about about your recent story was uh, the comment by one of the budgeting services that insurance is becoming a luxury. Did that surprise you? Yeah, well, a bit. I think um, if we unpack that a bit, I think it's probably the contents insurance that's becoming a luxury because if you have a home loan, you pretty much have to have house insurance, otherwise you're you know, you could default on your mortgage, but uh, and we actually we are pretty by international standards we're pretty well insured on the house level. But I think yeah, it makes sense that if people are really looking for things to cut from their budget, they always hope insurance is one of those things that you have, but you hope you never need. So maybe you're just thinking, oh, you know, take a risk on the contents. Perhaps I think there were some stats that said about seventy percent of people have contents insurance now. Premiums are going up a lot. Um, I think about 20% on average year on year, but we've seen some insurers talking about 30%. That's a really big increase to have to deal with. And as well, that's coming on top of increases you're facing in, in other areas as well. That's right. Yeah, it's not the only one that's gone up. Average rent prices have hit a new unwanted record, jumping to $610 per week. 
Fruit and vegetable prices saw the biggest year-on-year -year increase at 18.4%. I'm earning enough in the trades, but it's still not quite, quite enough to be even feeding myself. Yeah, it's a lot to squeeze into the, probably a pretty similar amount of money. <laughs> what is it about contents insurance that we can kind of, that we seem to view it as a bit of a nice to have as opposed to something that's a must have? Yeah, I think people underestimate how much all their stuff would cost to replace. I think I probably have in the past thought, I mean, I don't have that much stuff, particularly when I was renting, yeah, eh, you know, what do I actually have? But if you had to replace it all, it would cost a lot of money. And so, And also it leaves you exposed in lots of different ways if you don't have contents insurance. So I think people just don't, well, they don't want to engage with the prospect of maybe losing all their stuff anyway. And then just it's just something that becomes too hard, I think, for some people to contemplate. If we did start to see people pulling back from insurance, um, in any serious way, then it could make it a lot more expensive for those who did have insurance because presumably the people who would pull back would be those who felt that they didn't have very high risk. And so the people who were left would be those who expected something to happen to their house. And so they would be expensive for the insurance company anyway. I mean, why do we have insurance? I mean, what what is the purpose of insurance if we're going to take it right back to basics here? <laughs> yeah, well, I guess basically, well, it's kind of risk pulling, isn't it? Like if you very basic level, everyone pays a premium and then we bail out the person who, who needs it. Let's take a closer look at the insurance landscape in New Zealand. Chris Nicholl is an Associate Professor of Law at the University of Auckland, specialising in insurance law. We're very lucky in New Zealand because we do have what's called high insurance penetration, which simply means most people are insured, and it's quite different in a lot of other countries. Now, the reason we have that is because we are, if, if we could talk about natural hazards, mm. we are cross-subsidising one another. So, for example... If you're waiting for the big earthquake in Wellington. New research finds there's a high chance of the Alpine Fault rupturing in the next 50 years with an earthquake measuring magnitude 8 or higher. You won't be paying any more to EQC than if you were in Auckland. But then again, by the same token, you can say there's not the same chance of a volcano in Wellington as there is in Auckland. So there's that cross, cross subsidisation. Now, uh, as things are getting more and more difficult with climate change and climate change-induced hazards, it's getting more and more difficult uh, for insurance to cover those particular events. Because uh, the insurance market looks like it won't be able to keep up with the magnitude and severity major flood events, it's likely that it will be turning, and indeed one insurer has said it's going to do this already, it will be turning to what's called uh, risk-based pricing. So you're going to get away from that cross-subsidisation uh, comfort zone and people who are living in vulnerable areas will find their insurance premiums go right up and uh, people who don't are going to find their insurance premiums perhaps don't go up as much. So that's going to affect in the insurance penetration level we have now. You'll find people can't afford insurance and that could well be disastrous in terms of their mortgage it might eventually get to the stage where if they're living in a particularly vulnerable area, the insurance 
market won't simply won't insure them. And experts in climate risk is predicting in just 20 years, a million dollar property on the Petone foreshore in Wellington could cost $100,000 a year to insure. It comes as the government grapples with whether to set up its own flood insurance scheme to help cover people as private insurers become less willing to. It's going to discriminate, as it were, uh, against people who find themselves in vulnerable situations without necessarily any fault of their own. And um, that's another area altogether. Um, If they're there because they shouldn't be, uh, that's another question. Mm, mm. But those people who find themselves, I I call them the incumbents. They're in a situation that didn't exist, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And, And they're going to be very badly affected. The tension in insurance now really boils down to who's going to wear the risk, private insurers or the state. We've got a long history of the government forking out for natural disasters with the body known as EQC, actually founded way back in 1945. It started off based on the philosophical principle of solidarity, which is something which is uh, written into in the Constitution of Spain and France and a number of other countries. But it's moved over the years, particularly in the late 1980s, it moved to a more neoliberal free market type of philosophy. Mm. So this philosophy around leaving it up to each of us to deal with our own private insurance EQC coming in in certain circumstances to ensure our land in, you know, earthquakes, tsunamis, other natural hazards. Yes. If we're getting to a point where more and more of us aren't able to either afford insurance in the, or the premiums, I guess insurance retreat, the premiums go mm. up for certain places because they're at much higher risk. Yes. Um, and so you can't afford to buy insurance or people insurance companies just won't insure you in those areas. Mm. Where where do we get to next in our thinking or how homeowners or people living in those areas deal with that risk? Do they just have to up sticks and move out? Well, I think many of them will, but there's still going to be a problem even if they do. I think that we need a hybrid response from the EQC and the domestic insurance market because at the moment what we've got is an ad hoc knee-jerk reaction. You've got a major disaster like we've had recently and you've got the government coming in and spending large sums of money to help people out. Now, there's a, there's a moral hazard issue there. I call it charity hazard. It's where if people, and this is a well-documented cognitive bias amongst human beings, if you know that someone is going to come in and help you like that, then you're not likely to take the precautions or, and do your forward planning as much as you would otherwise. And this, of course, is something we're going to have to confront more and more with the impacts of climate change. I believe a uh, bipartisan approach should be taken by the major political parties. Given that this is... I think, maybe I'm um, overreacting, but I think it's possibly the worst crisis we faced as a country since the Second World War. It would be a principled approach so that, and this is so important, 
so that people have clarity. They know what's going to happen. At the moment, communities in Karikari, Murua have been out there uh, and other parts of the country, they don't actually know what they're going to get going to get even now and of course in the future when this sort of thing happens again they still won't know it'll be entirely up to the discretion of uh, the government of the time and this of course is this issue around you know Hawke's Bay Gisborne Auckland waiting to hear about these buyouts from the government and councils is what you're saying you're concerned about the precedent that that sets in the aftermath of Gabriel, that when the next cyclone comes around, we're just going to assume that the government and councils are going to step in, buy us out from our at yes, properties? Yes, and it's happened already because now I, I've heard people talking about, um, well, they bought out so many houses in Christchurch and they, I think they paid 100%. What are they going to do now? That's a dangerous precedent. It's a dangerous precedent unless it's within the structure of an act of parliament. It's that sort of clarity we need. The great thing about insurance is that it does help you plan for the future. If it's clear and it's made clear that this is all you're going to get, it enables you to plan for the future. Back in February, in the aftermath of both the Auckland anniversary weekend floods and Cyclone Gabrielle, the Natural Hazards Insurance Act passed its final reading in Parliament. It'll come into effect in July next year, and it clarifies state coverage for natural disasters like earthquakes and volcanoes, but it doesn't include climate disasters like storms and floods. Do you think that's something of a missed opportunity to sort of bring climate change-induced natural hazards more into our thinking and how it might work in in, in the new EQC-type model? Do you think we've sort of not thought forward enough and sort of used this as an opportunity to to deal with some of those issues that, that you've talked about? Absolutely. And we were precluded from doing that by Treasury, who set the boundaries of the process and said clearly that it wasn't to involve looking at policy. It was simply a modernisation of the existing legislation. And then, of course, there was that um, overlay as a result of Dame Sylvia Cartwright's inquiry. An inquiry headed by Dame Sylvia Cartwright found the Commission was ill-prepared to deal with the widespread damage of the quakes or to handle a mass-scale managed repair programme leading to multiple mistakes and inadequate quality control. So, yes, I think it was a lost opportunity. I hope we have an opportunity in the future to look at that again. It better be quick. I was about to say, it feels like a very New Zealand thing. We're always sort of catching up. Every time we, we do something new, we're actually we're already playing catch-up even when, before it's about to come in, into effect. You know, we sort of haven't quite foreseen all of the risks that are ahead of us, or we, we have foreseen them, but we're just not dealing with them. Well, it's not a New Zealand thing. It's, it's another one of those human cognitive biases where we, um, where, where we have a flood and as soon as the rain stops and the sun comes out, it's not long before everyone has forgotten about it, except, of course, for the people whose houses have been destroyed. Insurance is often the last step when it comes to a natural disaster. The damage happens, and if you're lucky, someone cleans up the mess. But there's a preventative aspect to be talked about too. 
As Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown put it in the wake of Auckland's anniversary weekend flooding back in January. There is a lot of messages to be learnt about how we build and look after our environment. Some of those houses, when, when you think about it, actually shouldn't have been where they are. The problem needing to be addressed is to stop immediately people building in dangerous places and then dealing in the best way possible with people who are the incumbents who find themselves already there. Councils and permitting authorities are able to give permits for building and major innovations in vulnerable areas, and I'm thinking particularly now of landslips. And we have two repeat situations, uh, one in Murawai where there was a landslip in the 1960s and then very recently there was another one. Both of those events uh, caused loss of life and really nothing should have been built on those properties. But as a result of the Abbotsford disaster... In 1979, a major landslip in the Dunedin suburb of Abbotsford destroyed 69 houses, but incredibly no one died. The law was changed to to prevent councils from permitting in those areas. But then, um, under the national government, there was a lot of fuss about the fact that, uh, hey, our property prices are going down, you know, we can't do these developments uh, that we need to do. So uh, a law was passed which enabled the councils to issue permits on land like that on the condition that the difficulties with the land were noted on the certificate of title. And as part of that arrangement, the permitting authorities, the councils, had no civil liability in respect of that decision to give a permit vis-à-vis people with an interest in, in that particular piece of property. I don't, I don't think that was a good thing. I think it was done for the wrong reasons. And I certainly hope that the reforms to the Resource Management Act are going to deal with that question. You probably wouldn't want to leave it in the hands of private insurers to go, mitigation is possible, because they might say, yeah, keep mitigating, keep, keep mitigating, when actually the smart thing to do is to yes. get out. Well, I think the insurance market has a limited role with mitigation because it's not really its job. Mm. The job of insurance is to measure risk. It's not to mitigate it. Measure it and price it appropriately, but not uh, not to mitigate it. Nevertheless, I don't see why they can't be thinking about some things they can do to mitigate. After all, they're, they're always uh, complaining about moral hazard. They're always complaining about the fact that once people get insured, they don't do anything to protect their property. If they're genuine about that concern, then why not say to people, look, um, we, we're going to replace your house, but we want you to raise the level or make sure your electrical equipment is put in a different place. What happens if that that level of insurance penetration does drop off? And I guess, you know, if you're not eligible for help from EQC because you don't have insurance, I mean, that all just kind of turns into a very awkward, difficult, more difficult picture, doesn't it? Well, it does. And 
And that's traditionally how a lot of national, um, I call them insurance programs, but really social welfare programs, the equivalent of EQC in Spain, uh, the National Flood Insurance Program in the United States, and indeed our earthquake insurance here, all arose originally because there simply was no cover. The insurance market was simply not offering flood insurance for Mississippi Delta Mm -hmm. area of the United States and that sort of thing. So I think once, once you have got an insurance market willing to cover these things, you have to work hard to keep it there in the market if you possibly can. But they have to do quite a lot of work as well. It's a joint effort, I think. I think it's still possible. A lot of people would say, mate, you're dreaming. Back to Stuff's Money editor, Susan Edmonds. What's the next step? We know we know that climate change is increasing risk. We know that we live on top of fault lines. We know that a magnitude 8 quake on the Alpine Fault is going to happen at some point in, in the future. Do we need to encourage more people to take up insurance? Do we need to increase how we value insurance or, you know, sort of put it at a top of mind kind of priority in our budgeting? Or what needs to change? How do we how do we get around this? Yeah, um, it's definitely a tricky one. I mean, I think insurance is a really important part of a person's financial kind of picture, that a lot of the insurance companies are moving towards a more risk-based process, particularly for house insurance. So that means if you live somewhere where you're more likely to get flooded, say, you might pay a bit more. And that can make it more affordable to have insurance if you have a safe house. But then you have to think about what that means for people who have houses in potentially quite vulnerable areas. Do we just kind of leading to it? How much are we happy with the government stepping in to help them out? That sort of thing. So it's definitely a minefield, but I really, I mean, if people are thinking of insurance as a luxury, I would urge them to think about that again, because I mean, even a small amount of insurance has got to be better than none. I mean, where do we go to from here in terms of insurance, balancing that risk? What would your advice be to someone who's weighing up their budget? Um, My advice would be to get the insurance that you can afford, um, because it's very expensive if you have something go wrong and you have to bail yourself out and you don't have insurance to help. I understand that people's budgets are incredibly tight and some people don't have enough money for food and things like that. So I can understand why people are making big cuts, but I would personally encourage people to you know, chat to an insurance company or an advisor about what's possible on their, the money that they have, because I think it is really important just as that safety net and see things go bad quite quickly. That's it for today. I'm Sarah Robson. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by Phil Benge and produced by Bonnie Harrison and Mark Jennings. And thanks to Susan Edmonds and Chris Nicholl. Mā te wā.